The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele. Today we'll be joined by Ted Walter and Mick Harrison. Uh, Ted is the Director of Strategy and Development here at AE 9-11 Truth. Uh, he was Director of NYC CAN's 2014 High-Rise Safety Initiative. He was a Volunteer Campaign Manager for AE 9-11 Truth's Rethink 911 campaign that was back in 2013. And he's the Director of New York City CAN's uh, 2009 Ballot Initiative as well. He authored the 50-page booklet, Beyond Misinformation, and the 13-page World Trade Center Physics publication, and, of course, AE 9-11 Truth's 2020 request for correction to NIST uh, regarding the World Trade Center 7 report, which we'll be talking about today. Ted, welcome back to the show. Hey, Andy. It's always great to be on. Thank you. Thank you. And my printer's working today, so now I can have all the stuff printed out in front of me. Uh, he's joined by Mick Harrison, who is the Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. He is an experienced public interest uh, plaintiff's attorney with a national practice focused on whistleblower protection, government oversight, and accountability and environmental protection. And he's really been going to the front lines with all of these lawsuits, trying to hold the system accountable for the greatest mass murder in American history. And uh, we'll be getting into some of the nitty-gritty today with him. Mick, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you, Andy. And just a clarification, I am the litigation director, no longer executive director of the Lawyers Committee. Okay, well, that is an important update. We will take note of that. And um, a lot of hard work is being done, regardless of what people's titles are. I look at what the, the fruits are. And uh, I know you've uh, been doing everything you can to try to get this issue out to the forefront. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the latest developments. I know that we sent out a bulletin about this the other day. Other day probably being a couple of days ago for this audience. And I saw I get passed around a lot on social media. But Ted, briefly remind our audience what this entire request for correction and lawsuit is all about. How did we get to where we are now? Sure, Andy. Uh, so two year, pretty much two years ago this week, uh, AE 911 Truth and 88 architects and structural engineers and 10 911 family members submitted a request for correction to NIST uh, regarding its final report on World Trade Center Building 7. Um, and this was just a few weeks after the release of final report from Professor Leroy Halsey at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, um, a computer modeling study on, on the collapse of World Trade Center Building 7. And so much of what was in the request was drawing from the findings of uh, Dr. Halsey's uh, report and study. Um, the request uh, basically covered eight areas in the NIST report uh, where we believe that NIST was violating its information quality standards 
These are standards that are that NIST has to establish that they were directed to establish uh, under the Data Quality Act. And so uh, four of those areas had to do with how NIST did its computer modeling. When you look at details of its computer model, certain structural features that they left out are the things they didn't do right. One of those areas had to do with how NIST model uh, doesn't actually manage to replicate or accurately predict the collapse. If you've looked at the model, you see that it actually looks nothing like the collapse. Um, the third uh, area, the other three counts in the, in the request had to do with how NIST omitted or distorted evidence of explosions and incendiaries. So direct evidence that Building 7 was brought down by controlled demolition. Um, NIST had uh, the, the process after that submission two years ago. Uh, NIST responded after several months denying our request as we uh, thought was likely, but not for sure. Um, and, uh, this was in August of 2020. Then we filed uh, a month later, um, an appeal, appe appealing their initial decision, uh, going into detail ab and about how their initial decision was, was basically totally unscientific. Um, like it wasn't just incorrect. It was so incorrect that it was irrational. And, um, you know, it, it, they were, they were completely skirting all the, all the issues that were raised in the request. Um, and the appeal laid that out in, in detail, as much detail as the original request. Uh, approximately a year later, NIST finally responded with their final decision, much shorter. I mean, the, the initial decision was short, but the final decision was even shorter, basically upholding the initial decision. Um, and, uh, you know, we have yet to see what's going to happen here. Our goal is that we can actually get NIST through this lawsuit now to have to respond meaningfully, substantively to the request. Um, as it stands now, what's come out of this so far is that NIST has put down on paper some extremely flimsy or completely empty, unsubstantive responses to our arguments, which just further shows how totally false and unscientific their report is. Uh, so that is one major outcome of this whole process so far, is that we forced NIST to further uh, reveal just how um, non-viable their uh, hypothesis, their theory for the collapse of Building 7 really is. Uh, so last September, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we filed a lawsuit um, in response to NIST's final decision, basically challenging uh, challenging the decision uh, on the grounds that, as I mentioned before, NIST's decision, what, their, their response wasn't only incorrect, it was profoundly incorrect, so much so that it was um, completely irrational and, and not really a good faith effort to respond to our arguments. And um, that's kind of where we are now is trying to show the courts that um, that NIST, NIST response doesn't really constitute a response under the Data Quality Act. Um, and NIST, uh, Mick can go into more detail than me about sort of legally, how do, how do we show that? What, what are we trying to show? But we're trying to get, we're trying to force NIST now to have to go back and actually respond to our request, which if, if they do, uh, would effectively mean, if they really respond in a, in a meaningful way, would mean they actually go back and run new analyses and change their uh, what they call probable collapse sequence for how the building came down, uh, their theory, uh, which is would not be that it came down due to fire, but that it came down due to controlled demolition, uh, because that is what all of the evidence shows. Mick, why don't you go ahead and do that? I was talking to Ted this morning about that, and it's sort of expected that they're going to go after 
the standing issue, I mean, I believe one, because they don't want to de defend the veracity of their arguments in court, but also it's just a typical thing to try to avoid even getting to that main event. Uh, but talk about this latest uh, step and let our viewers know anything that Ted may have left out and uh, why this stage is so important. Well, Ted set the stage pretty well. We are, as you say, Andy, not yet at the main event. And the defendant agency, NIST, is doing its best to prevent us from getting to the main event. The main event would be a decision on the merits of NIST's response to AE's request for correction and the appeal, where they really would have to get into the scientific evidence and the logic and say, uh, you know, what about all this evidence of explosives? Uh, what about the fact that our modeling doesn't actually match the way the building fell down? Those would be merits questions. So we're not there yet. We're at a preliminary stage that uh, parties and lawsuits often find themselves in against government and corporate defendants, where the defendant is trying to get the court to say, the plaintiff, AE in this case, and our other co-plaintiffs, 9-11 uh, family members, some architects and engineers who were co-requesters, uh, the government is saying these none of these plaintiffs have a right to be heard on the merits. So you, the court, don't need to bother with getting to the merits about how irrational our response was to this request for correction under the Data Quality Act because these folks don't have legal standing to even have the court consider their merits arguments. And even if they had standing, uh, they didn't state a viable legal claim in their complaint. So that's another backup reason the defendants are saying that our case doesn't even need to be heard. And these are typical defenses, uh, which you just sort of have to work your way through and the courts have been, I would say, somewhat stingy in granting standing on public interest cases, and more so in the later years, which is a trend we would like to see reversed. So we have done our, our brief stating our position on why we have standing. And that, and you may know, Andy, the standing in this case has two different categories. We can have standing for any of the plaintiffs as informational standing or AE as an organization can have a slightly different type of standing called organizational standing, which may be based on information or may, may be based on other impacts on the organization. So we've laid out our case on that and uh, happy to answer questions about the details as, as needed. Thank you for that. I feel like the show is, is sort of like the cable news network for the 9-11 truth movement on issues like this, where they have the, the, the talking heads, as we are all now, uh, going over some of the minutiae of matters like this. We've certainly made the case for controlled demolition a number of times. Um, so as has already been established, they're not taking us on on the veracity of the claims. They want to say that people like Bob McElvain, uh, people, organizations like AE 9-11 Truth don't have the right to even take this to court, don't have the right to challenge this. Uh, and... One of the things that they say, I noticed, and I, I spent most of my time prepping for this by looking at NIST's argument, their motion to dismiss, because you guys can make the case for us here uh, since you guys wrote it. But the uh, 
but you know they're motion dismissed. And what they seem to do is they seem to harp on the fact that this is only based on World Trade Center Seven. Nobody died at World Trade Center Seven, uh, supposedly, and so by virtue of that, Bob McElveen doesn't have standing. AE doesn't have standing, and it's for different reasons, obviously, because you have individuals, family members versus organizations. Uh, but Mick and then Ted, if you feel if you feel you want to jump in too, do so. But uh, talk about this this approach that they take. You know, nobody died at World Trade Center Seven, so why are we even talking about this? You know, why why do why do they why do we have standing? Do you want to start, Ted, or shall I? You can go for it, Mick. Okay, so in terms of that standing argument, and they did make that argument, Andy, I found it personally offensive to say that a 9-11 family member, such as Robert McElvain, who lost his son Bobby at the Trade Center due to explosions, doesn't have standing to complain that a federal agency issued a sham, basically fraudulent report about one of the three buildings that collapsed uh, symmetrically, uh, uh, rapidly on 9-11, that he doesn't have standing to complain that there was a cover-up, a sham report issued by a federal agency, which is misleading the entire world, including all the family members, that, uh, you know, explosives weren't the cause of the collapse of any of those buildings. NIST wants to make a distinction, which is, to me, just irrational, that just because explosives can be shown to have brought down the two towers doesn't mean that, uh, you know, uh, that's related to Building 7's cause and vice versa. If Building 7 is shown to have been brought down by explosives, that doesn't mean anything about why the two towers collapsed on the same day uh, after the same terrorist attack. And you sort of have to just, you know, look at that argument and say, duh, what are they thinking? that there really were, you know, there's some separate reason entirely for one of these three buildings or two of them to have collapsed on the same day during a terrorist attack. Uh, it's like, you know, the FBI investigating uh, an incident where a lot of folks killed and finding that, you know, there were three buildings impacted and explosives were found in two of them. And the FBI saying, oh, we don't have any reason to investigate explosives in the third one. You know, same day, same block. Um, so it's an irrational argument. Um, you know, Bob McElvain stated in his declaration, which is the federal form of an affidavit, the, the obvious, which is understanding why Building 7 collapsed. So we have Mick Harrison, and he back. He's worked out his internet issues. Why don't you just pick up where you left off? You were talking uh, about that issue of standing regarding Building Seven. They want to say it's a separate incident from what happened to the Trade Towers, and so Bob McElvain doesn't have any right to challenge this. Right. So uh, Bob McElvain stated the obvious in his declaration, supporting our response, which is that it matters to him why Building Seven collapsed because it should help understand why the two towers collapsed. He sees the obvious connection between the three buildings collapsing on the same day during the same terrorist attacks. And so do we. And we would think any reasonable person would see that there's not likely to be a separate explanation 
uh, if explosives were used to bring any of those buildings down, there's no reason to believe the perpetrators would have, you know, managed to bring one of the three buildings down some other way. It's virtually certain. It's like the FBI investigating a crime where there are, you know, three buildings or three cars affected or three somethings affected by explosives, and they find explosives in two locations, and they just walk away and say, oh, we, need, we don't need to bother to look in the third location because that's a different place. Um, it doesn't make any sense. So, and now that only um, really affects the 9-11 family members, and that's not their, you know, their only basis for standing, but the, we also have AE, which has its own separate bases for standing, and uh, Ron Brookman and the other engineers who have their own kind of unique bases for standing. Well, I'm going to ask Ted to comment on this in just a moment, but I want, I was going to bring this up later, but I want to bring it up now because it relates. Uh, the information, their exempt, oh, actually, let me rewind from that. So NIST says that the plaintiffs, which is us and family members, uh, that the claims on what would happen if they were forced to revise this report uh, and admit that explosives brought down World Trade Center 7, that it's speculative and fails to address causation and redressability. So they essentially say that there's no guarantee that Congress would go back, reinvestigate this, you know, launch a new investigation, that anything would happen, that they would even look at the fall of the Twin Towers again if it was admitted that explosives brought down World Trade Center 7. Um, I shouldn't have to say to you guys and to this audience that that is a stretch, that if, that if NIST was, was forced to admit that explosives likely brought down World Trade Center 7 after all this time calling us conspiracy theorists, if the media spending all its time citing the NIST report, calling us uh, names and conspiracy theorists, that this would not be a big deal, that this might not cause some major action to take place regarding the, tr the trade towers. Um, so I'm going to get Ted's thoughts on this standing issue, but Mick, uh, I just want you to uh, address that for our audience, if you could. Okay, do you want me to go first or Ted? No, uh, yeah, uh, you first, Mick. Well, the, the obvious thing for me is if you look at the the destruction of the towers, they're much more explosive in nature than Building 7. So if Building 7 was found to have explosives, it's much more likely, actually, that uh, the towers had explosives, too, because you just watch the collapses. Building 7 is sort of quietly, smoothly dropping symmetrically, and the towers are exploding outward. So if you show uh, explosives for Building 7, you know, it's almost certain you're going to show them for the towers. So that doesn't really work. Plus, you had all the first responders trying to get rescue folks in the towers reporting real-time sights and sounds of explosions. And you had all the news media that, that Ted articulates in our request for correction noting explosions. Uh, most of those were on the towers. So if you have all this evidence, uh, which also relates to Building 7, but a lot of it's on the towers, uh, if you find, you know, if NIST goes back and does its homework as we're asking on the request for correction, and the court orders it, and they come out with a legitimate report that says, okay, the site says controlled demolition, explosions were, explosives were used. What does that mean? And I think Ted can tell you what he thinks it means, and he has said that in our filings. Right, and I'll just say, it reminds me of the guy I debated when I was first waking up to this. We went point by point on all various aspects of 9-11, even outside of AE's mission, because I wasn't with AE at the time. 
we get to building seven. And he says, well, that's probably just something we don't need to know about. So he was basically admitting that it was probably a controlled demolition. But you don't get to do that. You don't get to say, okay, well, they brought they put explosives in Building 7, but they didn't on the towers. Building 7 was something completely different. Trust us on the towers. It was exactly how they said, despite all the stuff that Mick just listed and that AE has been talking about for years. To say that it's speculative that this wouldn't have an impact on the towers is a stretch on this part. I understand they're doing a job. I understand their lawyers are doing a job. But uh, give me a break here. Ted, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I think, we, you know, we, we like Bob McElvain, have stated the obvious that clearly what is found about Building 7 would have huge uh, implications for the towers and on a political level would, would almost certainly spur new investigations into how the towers came down and all other aspects of 9-11 if um, NIST were forced to redo its report and reach the conclusion that Building 7 was brought down by controlled demolition. Um, to be clear, that is not the, uh, you know, that is one reason that NIST is giving right now for why the family members don't have standing as far as, you know, Building 7 and, and what, you know, the, the reason that NIST is giving for Building 7 coming down. Even if, even if Building 7 didn't have any, what we find out about Building 7 doesn't have direct ramifications on the towers, although it obviously does, there, NIST still has a responsibility to issue, uh, you know, unbiased um, information, information that meets its, its own information quality standards as far as it relates to Building 7. And there are many other bases in our request and in the lawsuit that the parties have, a United 11 Truth included, for, you know, for why we do have standing. Um, to bring this lawsuit and why, why NIST's, um, you know, why NIST's explanation and analysis uh, around the collapse of Building Seven is important and does materially affect us at United Eleven Truth as an organization, um, the engineers and architects who are plaintiffs in this case, and even the family members, uh, regardless of even regardless of whether you say that there's a connection between how Building Seven came down and the towers. Well, there's a lot of stuff and a lot of specifics in here that I could harp on. But if you read this overall, and we're just to give a, a summary out to the audience, it seems that if you go strictly by NIST and the government's arguments that we've encountered on standing on various issues, but we're focusing in on this one here. Um, the question is, do citizens, ordinary citizens, have a right to challenge their government whatsoever? Because it seems like NIST is doing everything they can to say that they can't. That is, by our own standard, we set it. And even if uh, people are finding problems with it, well, that is too bad. We were only required to issue a final report. It doesn't matter if it's accurate. It doesn't matter if there's a bunch of holes in it and mistakes. We did that. We closed off the public correction period or whatever they call it, final, the public comment period, and now we're done. We don't have to do any more. We don't have to answer to engineers that have uh, come out and point out problems, major problems, missing features in our reports. We don't have to do a darn thing. And uh, unless we can find somebody that can meet this narrow definition of, of standing, this metaphorical flaming loops to jump through, in order to uh, be able to bring this to court, then we can just put a big lock and key on it, say we did our job to the public, and be done with it, despite the fact that thousands of people died in the 9-11 event, and we never got the full story. Um, that's a mouthful to try to address there, uh, Mick, but if you could, I mean, 
you know, how accurate is what I just said there? It seems it sounds like it's an issue of can third parties challenge the government? To me, it seems like something that could go to the Supreme Court. But I'm not a lawyer. You are. Go ahead and comment on that if you could. Well, it could and probably already has in the general sense that citizens do have the right to challenge their government when they're impacted. And the whole question of standing is, you know, were you impacted? How were you impacted? Informational standing has to do with whether you're impacted by not getting information that you're entitled to. And we argued that under the National Construction Safety Team Act, there is a requirement. It's not discretionary. And this has to issue a report on the likely technical cause of Building 7's collapse. And they purport to have done that. So the question becomes, and since we have established, AE has established in the request for correction that that report just got it completely wrong to the point of being a sham, and in in my view, to the point of being intentionally misleading or fraudulent, the question becomes, are citizens harmed when the government issues a report required to be publicly released, but it's a fraud, it's a sham. And our argument is that a sham report is actually worse than no report because a sham report gives the misimpression to the citizenry that the government is doing its job and that everything's fine and that we've got the answer to the questions when in fact it's the opposite. And so, you know, our argument is yes, uh, all of the plaintiffs have standing because they all had the right to see this report required by statute and they have a meaningful right. It's not just a token. A sham report, a fraudulent report, doesn't work. It's not compliance. And that's going to be a key issue in this case. Is sham compliance okay with the courts? Are agencies able to do something that's dishonest and get by with it? Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like they're, they're saying watchdog groups have no legal rights. And we can get into that in a moment. But, uh, Ted, why don't you go ahead and comment on what Nick just said? Yeah, another way of looking at it is what what NIST is essentially trying to argue is as we're trying to establish standing, we're trying to establish that we had a right to this information because um, NIST was statutorily required to release this information, this report. NIST is essentially trying to argue that you don't have a right to that information being quality information. You don't have a right to that information being true. You just have a right to uh, have a report issued regardless of how true or false or well, you know, well-intentioned or not it is. So, you know, there has to be some reasonable line, right. As to like, what is that information actually did NIST actually meet their, their, their mandate uh, to issue a report on the likely technical cause of the collapse of building seven, you know, and NIST is basically trying to say, if we released anything that is a couple hundred pages, doesn't matter how, meaningful or not or true or false it or not it is we you once we issue that report your right has been satisfied and we are saying no the we have a right to the as i understand it at least i'm not a lawyer but as i understand it no we have a right to that report actually being truthful and to not be a sham and i don't mean to laugh here in the background but it's like we're living a big simpsons episode now um you know, first of all, try to say that to the cops. Well, I, I, you know, I can give you information if I'm being questioned about a murder. It doesn't have to be accurate or anything, you know, as long as I told you something. 
I was, you know, I was, I was at yeah. this party, but it turns out I wasn't. I was actually uh, right outside the victim's window. Well, I didn't perjure myself in court or anything like that. Um, but this is basically what NIST is saying. Now, you know, it's 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 technically not perjury because it's they didn't say it in court. But I don't know. There's so many questions that get raised now because if people yeah. are using this NIST report in lawsuits and it's false, I mean, right. you know, again, I'm not a lawyer, but it sounds like it's perjury. Um, and so I'm going to ask Miss uh, Mick here. You know, again, it's saying they're saying that the NCST Act only required them to issue a report. Um, first of all, what does NIST acknowledge that it is required to do? Is there anything that they are supposed to do? Are they accountable to us at all in their mind? Uh, do they acknowledge that they have any accountability at all? And also, what kind of legal obligation does it have to make sure the report is correct? I remember when I had Jerry Burns on here years ago talking about mail administration laws in Scotland. Uh, it doesn't seem like we have anything like that here. I mean, what legal obligation do they have to make sure they're giving us an accurate report? Yeah, it's a good question. And we do have something like that here, I would say, um, probably more than one statute. One of those is called the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, which we're also suing under. And any time an agency does something arbitrary and capricious, i.e. irrational, or something not in accordance with law, something contrary to required procedure, citizens can sue under the APA to challenge that uh, irrational or illegal action by the agency. And we're doing that in this lawsuit, in addition to, you know, arguing claims under the uh, Data Quality Act and the National Construction Safety Team Act, we have APA claims as well. So to answer your question about what does NIST admit to having responsibility to do, only one thing that I can see, and that is to issue a piece of paper that says it's a report about World Trade Center 7's collapse. According to them, if they issued a one-line report that said it was a report on the collapse, that they would have satisfied their only obligation. And even if that one line was a lie. And instead, they've issued a lengthy report, which gives the false impression of them doing their homework. And it has a bunch of lies in it. And it gives a misimpression. And it really is more counterproductive than had they just said, you know, we're not going to do a report. And the public at least would have known that they had no answers yet. And now they've been misled into thinking they have the answers and they don't. So there is a basis for challenging this type of illegal action. Um, you know, and this doesn't want to acknowledge that. But, you know, the, the government seldom does until they, they lose a case. Yeah, um, I'm going to turn to Ted in just a moment. But, you know, as I read this, I take a step back and I look at the bigger picture and it begins to feel like if NIST actually gets away with this, if they make this case in court and the court rules with them, then it basically makes the case to me as a third party, regular citizen standing on the outside here, even though I work for AE, that all of this talk about the American system and citizens' rights and what you can do and government accountability and answering the people is really just a fiction. That at the end of the day, the system can come in and say, you know, look, we don't have to answer to anyone. All right, it might as well be a big mafia. It might as well be Tony Soprano out there eating spaghetti in the corner of the restaurant saying, I ain't got to answer nothing to you. When it, when, it, when it counts, when it counts. 
And so what does an ordinary citizen do? I mean, I'll just I'll just create a hypothetical scenario so people aren't aren't focusing on 9-11 here. I mean, let's say I have a relative who dies working for the government in a chemical explosion, and it turns out that there is some kind of mechanical um, uh, failure that happened that could have been prevented, and um, I want to sue over that. Now, as me, as an ordinary person, I don't understand that stuff. I can't understand all the specific machinery going around. So, you know, the, the, there's limits at which you can file these lawsuits and everything, but it requires somebody first to pick up on the information, an ordinary person, and then find the, the right lawyer and the right experts to make this case. It just seems like a lot of holes, uh, or hoops rather, for people to jump through in order to get any kind of justice for the ordinary person. They make it very difficult. So it's like, you know, of course you're going to have third-party watchdog groups. Somebody like Bob McElvain, he's a very smart guy, but, you know, the, the deeper engineering concepts other than the building shouldn't have gone down that way. Uh, you know, he's not going to necessarily grasp on them. You're going to have third-party groups like AE911 Truth come in and do it, and that's what you need. But they want to shut that down. And essentially, again, they just want to eat the plate of spaghetti and say, we don't have to answer to you on nothing. Um, Ted, do you have any comments on what Mick said or anything I just said? Well, I, you know, it what what NIST is doing in this, um, in their motion to dismiss, in some ways, you know, in the bigger picture, it's, I, I want to bring attention to when you say, when they say we don't have to answer to you, they're saying sort of in a legal setting. I, I want to like bring it back to the bigger picture that when you look at their res- actual responses to the request for correction, that is what they're doing, you know, in a scientific arena. Um, we submitted a request for correction that was over a hundred pages that went through in meticulous detail documenting the ways in which their report did not uh, reach and violated their information quality standards. And most importantly, the standard that the information that they issue uh, has to be objective. And, um, and we made very specific requests as to how that information should be corrected. Um, if you, any, any thinking person, you know, who reads our request, it's actually, in a lot of ways, if you want to commit the, a little bit of time, it's not that difficult to understand the concepts here. This is not like some, you know, crazy engineering um, analysis. Uh, you know, I, I wrote most of the request with the help of many engineers um, and other experts. Uh, but I'm not an engineer, so I think anybody can actually understand it. And if you read the request and then you read NIST's responses, which are about 10% of the length um, or less of the request, each of the points in the request, you know, they deal with it in a single page. Um, you know, you'll see that they're not actually responding in a real way. Um, and I can give some, you know, some some simple examples. Um, we look at their story. I think many of many of the listeners will be familiar with Barry Jennings, uh, the uh, New York City Housing Authority official who was in Building Seven uh, during during the events of 9/11 and tried to evacuate the building and reported an explosion. Uh, when he made it down to the sixth floor. In the NIST report on Building 7, they say that Barry Jennings and the gentleman he was with, Michael Hess, the Corporation Counsel for New York City, uh, started to leave from the 23rd floor where the Emergency Operations Center was at 9.59 a.m. when the South Tower came down. They said that the lights started to flicker in Building 7 and, and they started to leave the 20th, 23rd floor. And, they, and then when they got down to the sixth floor, that's when the North Tower came down, the second tower, 
which is at 1028. And that is what explains the phenomena that Jennings and Hess uh, witnessed, which on the day of 9-11, they thought was an explosion, was a huge explosion. Um, and Jennings continued to maintain that, although Hess changed his story. If you if you look at that, there's this is saying that it took them 29 minutes to, to go from the 23rd floor to the sixth floor. That's 17 floors. That's basically a minute and 40 seconds per floor. Um, if you're walking at a normal speed, it probably takes you 15, 20 seconds to go down a floor. If you're running down the stairs, which Barry Jennings said they were doing, uh, you know, you're talking a matter of seconds. You're probably talking about getting down 17 floors in, in a couple minutes. You know, so why did it take them 20, 29 minutes to descend, you know, 16 floors, almost two minutes a floor? That is one of the things that we challenge in the request. Um, and, you know, we didn't we didn't have access to the, actually NIST has refused to release all the interviews that they conducted with all these people, with Barry Jennings, with Michael Hess. So we don't have access to any of this. We just can read their story and say that it doesn't make sense. And the, the explosion that Jennings witnessed probably happened a lot earlier. No, almost certainly happened a lot earlier than 1028. It was not the North Tower coming down. It was an explosion inside Building 7. This is NIST's response. We spent pages and pages discussing this. I want to give you NIST's response. Um, NIST disagrees with the assertion that it distorted eyewitness reports of an explosion occurring inside WTC 7. The rescue events documented in NC Star 1-9, Section 6.5.2, are based on eight independent interviews. And that's it. It just stops. All, so all they say in response to all this analysis showing that their story doesn't make any sense. And we're saying, if your story makes sense, explain to us. Explain how did it take them 20, 29 minutes to descend that many floors? Um, they, they gave us nothing. All they say is our story is based on a lot of interviews, which, by the way, we don't have access to. They're not actually explaining what it, why did it take them that long to descend those floors. So that's, a, that's, one, of the more, <laughs> that's one of the more simple examples um, I could go into some interesting stuff regarding the, the modeling. I mean, one one of the simpler examples in terms of the modeling is there's a beam that had to expand a certain amount in order to cause this initiating failure of this girder falling off of its seat, right? Um, the analysis shows that that beam can't actually expand far enough to push the girder all the way off of its seat. And this was discovered several years after the report came out. We challenged, we challenged NIST on this issue. And we said, if your story, if you like, tell us how long did the beam actually expand? Because our analysis says that it can only expand a certain distance, not far enough to push the girder off its seat. All NIST had to do was answer us in their response and ideally amend their report to explain how far the beam actually, how long it actually expanded. They didn't answer us. They did not going to amend the report. And that's because we know scientifically that the beam physically cannot expand long enough to push that girder off its seat. If it could, they would have given us the answer. So this is the kind of thing that we that we are challenging with our lawsuit. We're saying that their response to that question, along with all these other questions, is arbitrary and capricious. They're not giving us it's, – it's an irrational, unscientific, non-response – to our arguments and to our legitimate request for them to correct their report. So that's, that's really yeah. what we're dealing with in a, in a sorry, in a, in a bigger way, you know, it's all part of this, you know, what they're doing in the lawsuit now is a, is a similar pattern to what they did 
with the re with the request was, as you were saying before, we don't have to answer your questions. Is essentially what they did in their response to our request. Right, and you know, getting back to this issue with you know third parties, watchdog groups, they're trying to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my reading is that they're saying that AE nine eleven Truth is able to still do its work. Uh, in fact, because uh, we challenged their report, uh, that uh, we're actually helped by it. But actually, no. Like things like not releasing the input data. This is my line of thinking. I'm going to have Mick uh, lawyer check me here in a minute. But you know, not releasing the input data, not releasing all the information, and by virtue of being the government agency that the media uh, turns to. Uh, to try to say that we are, quote, conspiracy theorists, we're crazy, we're, we're completely, uh, you know, missing uh, some screws in our brains here. By talking about this, it actually hinders our abilities. I mean, there are tons of nonprofits out there in the world, and I know that there's some bad players out there trying to say that we're this, you know, corporation, we have all this money. No, we're not. No, we're not. Someday I may, may uh, have to switch my camera around so you can see the other side of this room. I'm up, we're operating out of our own houses and, you know, uh, holding it together here. Um, <clears throat> and obviously media out there attacking us does not help. And that is, that is fueled by NIST putting out this official report that a lot of people in the media have no real clue how to discern. Um, they're just basically told this is the official story. NIST is paid by taxpayer dollars. Taxpayer dollars is basically collected essentially at force. I mean, if you don't pay it, you're going to be in some serious trouble with our government here. So they're funded that way. We have to fund ourselves our own ways, um, fundraisers and stuff like that. And when they put out this false official report, refuse to address any of our concerns, it does have a detrimental effect. That's my opinion. I don't know. I want to hear what mixed thoughts on that that line of logic yeah. goes. It's pretty close, Andy, to what the law says at the moment. The law gives organizations standing if the government's information, misinformation, or withholding of information interferes with the organization's mission and activities and causes the organization to incur costs, abnormal, extraordinary costs, in order to combat the violations of, in this case, the NC. ST Act, the National Construction Safety Team Act, and the Information Quality Act. So, you know, we're sort of an extreme case. AE had to go to extraordinary expense to do the University of Alaska Fairbanks study, costing over $300,000 for a nonprofit to fund just to get an independent engineering look on what really happened at Building 7 because NIST was putting out misinformation on it. So we articulated this to the court. And I think it's a very solid basis for AE having standing under informational standing. The case law is actually pretty good on this. Um, so NIST is trying to pretend that that didn't happen, but you know it's it's really undisputable, that, indisputable that it did happen. So I think your statement is is generally correct, and I think the law supports it. And AE should be found to have standing here. I'm actually cautiously optimistic that the court will find standing in this case. Um, we actually have the same judge that ruled against us in another 9-11 related case uh, on the FBI 9-11 Review Commission. And in that case, he did not find standing. And you might think that's discouraging, but listen carefully. In that decision, the judge said, well, if the statute in question in that case, which was a funding statute 
had actually imposed a specific obligation to issue a public report on the agency, then maybe Bob McElvain would have had informational standing. And in our case, which is on a, ba a different statute, okay, the National Construction Safety Team a Act, it does explicitly require a public report to be issued. So under the judge's prior analysis, I believe uh, he may be well inclined to embrace the case law we articulated here, which is under the facts of this case and the statute at issue in this case, there is standing. So I am, you know, cautiously optimistic that we're going to get to the merits in this case. Andy, we can't hear you on mute. And probably just as well by my lip reading. Yeah, well, I was going to say, give him hell, Mick, because you got the training, <laughs> you got the knowledge to do this, and uh, you know the points to seize on. All I can do is just make my uh, armchair quarterback comments from the sidelines here. Um, Ted, now, I, you know, comment on anything that I just said or Mick just said, but also you've got a graph here you've uploaded into the stream, so I want to give you a chance in the last 10 minutes or so to uh, go over that. So you got the floor. Well... I don't really have anything new to say on, on what, what we've been saying here. I, you know, I come back to it's being this fascinating idea that the public has a right to information, but doesn't have a right to that information being quality or truthful. Uh, and so that's one of the essence of what we're, we're challenging on, on the standing issue. One of, one of the thing, one of the things on standing. Um, the thing that I uploaded was if we got, if we had time for it, or if, if we wanted some more examples, uh, we're going to be, I, I actually want to, let everybody know that we're going to be publishing a series over the over the next month. It's going to start this week, where we actually unpack uh, what was in the request for correction, what was in this response to the request for correction, what was in our appeal, uh, and go sort of point by point. You know, each article looking at you know one or a few of the points that were argued back and forth, so that the public and you know our supporters, um, the nine eleven community, can really understand what NIST's response to the request for correction revealed uh, about the, um, you know, the vacuous nature of their report. Um, so, and so one of the graph that, the, I mean, the, the figure that I have here right to show, if we want to go into it, is one of the biggest ones. I mean, um, this is, um, there will be hopefully an article on this later in the week. Um, this is uh, the girder that was allegedly pushed off of its seat the seat is the thing at the bottom that this, what looks like an I-beam is sitting on. Um, and the, the beam itself, the girder, uh, was pushed rightwards off of that ledge, essentially, according to NIST. And that's what initiated the entire global collapse of Building 7. What's, what's interesting is that um, once we dug into, once engineers uh, started digging into the the story that NIST gave, we found that, and then once we finally had access to the, the structural drawings and so on, found that there were these features here. You see those two squares there on either side of the beam, and there, there's a red arrow pointing to one of them. NIST actually omitted those, omitted those from its modeling. That's called a, a stiffener, uh, and it's the web stiffener. So it's uh, technically meant to stiffen the thing in the middle, the, the, the long eye part of the beam. Um, and the, the story is that, well, basically what this thing ha was happening is that thing was pushed rightwards. And in their modeling, those stiffeners weren't there. Those squares weren't there. So as soon as the beam got pushed over the edge, the middle of the beam was pushed far enough over the edge. The bottom part of the, the eye part of the beam started to could bend. Right. And then and then it fell off. 
um, because it, it, it failed. Uh, as soon as you include those stiffeners there, um, the bottom part of the beam won't bend as soon as the middle of the beam is over the edge of the seat, right? It'll, it'll just continue to get pushed out. It won't actually start to bend and fail because you have that square there stiffening the bottom part of the beam. Um, NIST, NIST uh, had, has admitted that they left those out of their modeling. And we know now from the UAF analysis and from basic engineering that if you include those stiffeners, the bottom of the beam will not bend and the beam will not fall off of its bearing seat. NIST gave a totally ludicrous justification in their response to the request for why they left those stiffeners out. Um, there was a preliminary analysis that they did where they were looking at a really zooming in and looking at one portion of the floor system to see how it would behave if you really heated it up. And they decided to leave those stiffeners off in that preliminary analysis to sort of look at a worst case scenario of how, what, how, what can happen if you leave off these, this feature, you know, and they didn't find that there would be any bending of the bottom of the beam of, of the flange. Um, and, but that's actually because the beam in that analysis didn't get pushed to the edge of the seat. Um, and there's a whole other reason why it didn't get pushed to the edge of the seat in that analysis, which is, I'm not going to get into that. It's, there's a lot of rabbit holes here, but, um, and, but they actually say in their report that for this beam to fall off of its seat, the bottom did have to bend. And they've essentially acknowledged that, that, that stiffener would stop it from bending and yet they say the stiffener was not needed to prevent this failure from occurring because it didn't occur. That failure didn't occur in the preliminary analysis. But in the in the main analysis, the failure does occur. That is how it falls off the seat. Yeah. And yet they say they leave off the stiffener. So it's a little bit complicated, hard to explain to a non-engineering audience in, in two or three minutes. But it is like it is the height of uh, uh, irrational scientific fraud basically like it doesn't get any more clear cut than this and they've already acknowledged that they left off this feature right. so this is their their entire scenario depends on this feature being omitted when it was actually there it was a part of the structure so gentlemen i apologize i have to run in a moment to do a congressional communication uh, could i add a sort of a closing comment for me yeah please do andy you're still on mute Okay, so um, um, the engineers who are co-plaintiffs in this have an interesting standing argument that I find quite persuasive. Uh, Ronald Brookman gave us a declaration explaining that professional engineers have ethical obligations, analogous to some that lawyers have, but to make sure that their work uh, protects, you know, um, public safety and doesn't put people at risk and that he he takes that obligation seriously and because of that he's done a multi-year inquiry into building seven and it hasn't um you know persuaded him that nist has gotten to the truth of the matter so he feels the need to get their report corrected because of his professional ethics and i think the court needs to embrace that standing argument as well Absolutely. Well, Mick, I don't want to keep you from what you got to do next. So let's uh, go ahead and, and take you out of the stream. Thank you so much. And uh, now that we have Ted 
bring down the graphic here. Ted, for our audience, what can they expect next, uh, as we always ask, and how can they help out? Absolutely. So uh, we expect NIST has the opportunity now to respond within two weeks. Uh, we filed this on Monday of this week, and NIST, NIST has until the, you know Monday, two weeks from that, to respond. Uh, and then the court is going to decide the matter of whether or not we have standing, whether or not um, agency actions under the Data Quality Act are subject to judicial review. That's another aspect of uh, how NIST is trying to get the case thrown out at this at this level. Um, from there, it'll probably be you know anywhere from like two to six months, maybe about three months for the court to uh, review the case and issue a decision. Um, if we get if we if we prevail right now, that means then the case will go forward and will be argued on the merits of whether NIST's responses, as we discussed earlier, to the request uh, are are irrational, uh, are incorrect to the point of being uh, arbitrary and capricious agency action. Um, and so we're hoping that we do get there, uh, of course. Um, and if we prevail there, then NIST has to go back and redo, re- respond to the request in a meaningful way. Uh, if we lose at this current phase, uh, we will most likely um, appeal the case to the Court of Appeals um, in, in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, and so that would probably happen over the next, I don't know, if we lose at this stage, find out in three months, probably by the end of the year, we might be killing this case. Um, and we'll be arguing the same questions there. You know, do we have standing? Is our agency actions under the Data Quality Act judicially uh, reviewable? And, you know, so we essentially have two chances, um, two bites at the apple here to try to win on the on the technical, you know, technicalities. Um, so that's that's what's, the, what's ahead. Um, Mick has said that he's cautiously optimistic that we will prevail either at this level or at the appellate level and that we will be able to we'll have the opportunity to show that its responses are um irrational and that this has to go back and redo its report uh in the in the meantime as i said before as well uh much has already been exposed through this request for correction process and you know we're going to encourage people to read the articles that are going to be coming out in the coming month that really detail on detail the issues with this response to the request for correction. So, and, and, and that's one of the most important things is for readers to, you know, educate them and readers, listeners, and so on to educate themselves. And, you know, the more that they know, the more that they can help educate others. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we're creating a paper trail here, just an indisputable record that any engineer in the world uh, can look at, you know, you the whole stiffener issue that I just spoke about, any engineer could spend about 20, 30 minutes looking at that and realize that NIST and that NIST story depends entirely on that, that the NIST um, theory of building sevens collapse is, is impossible. 30 minutes, you know, so and we're, we're exposing all of that. So it's critical that people share the articles that we're going to be publishing, share the request for correction with their friends, especially if you happen to know engineers. And please encourage engineers and architects to sign our petition. We have to we have to keep growing, and we, as we make take big steps forward, we anticipate hundreds and thousands of engineers and architects joining this fight, signing our petition, and our voice becoming much louder in the months and years, and hopefully not too many years ahead. 
That's right. And it, when you support actions like this, you know, regardless of what happens at this stage, first of all, we're going to keep going and we're going to appeal it. So you could be a part of history right now. We could be making history, see how far this goes. We obviously want it to be handled right now at this stage. But you also force this to make these arguments, these ridiculous arguments, make these statements. Well, we don't you know, we don't have to give an accurate report is essentially what they're saying. And it gets them on the record. It reveals them for who they are. The best way to bring down a dictator is make them act like one. I've heard that expression somewhere in life. And the best way to handle the government NIST in this way is to force them to make these ridiculous arguments to defend themselves because they can't defend themselves on the science. So that's why doing all of these lawsuits and whatnot is so important. That's why we need your help, your support um, when, when it comes up. So please consider donating to do that. Ted, thank you for all the work you're doing on this. And thanks to Mick, who's not here at the moment, but was here earlier. And, uh, yeah, Godspeed. Move forward. And thanks for coming on Freefall today. Thank you, Andy. All right. That is another episode of 9-11 Freefall. And I hope the sound quality was better this week. Yes, I have been seeing all the comments uh, complaining about the sound quality on previous episodes and I wanted to do something about that this week. Uh, I talked to a sound expert, and I also watched a YouTube video. It turns out I was doing the opposite of what I should be doing. Yes, all of the settings and everything, I had it on the opposite of what you're supposed to do. So some of the microphone is just picking up me, hopefully. I don't know. Tell me what you think in the YouTube comments, or you can go to 911freefall.com. But we're a work in progress here. We're always looking to improve. And if it comes to it, I'll buy a new microphone. I'm trying to avoid doing that because I am not a billionaire here. I'm not uh, Donald Trump or Elon Musk or one of those people, but if I have to, I'll buy a new one. Anyway, thanks for watching today and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.